now God's word from Ruth chapter 3. The Lord does speak to us through it. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when the Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word, and you do speak to us through it. So we do ask that you would clearly speak to us. Would you show us your Savior, Jesus Christ? Would you teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and instruct us that we might walk in a way that is pleasing to you? May you edify us in our faith and help us to walk in a way that's pleasing to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So one of the great and glorious truths that we have been seeing throughout the book of Ruth is that of God's providence, his sovereign providence, that God rules and defends over all his creatures and all their actions. He works out all of his holy will. Nothing escapes his holy will. But the perplexing question, I think, for most of us who understand that truth and believe that truth is how then do we live under the, the umbrella of God's providence. And people have different responses to that. One uh, made famous by the bumper sticker that simply says, let go and let God. Simply like, I don't, it doesn't really matter. God's, going, God's got this. Let him take the wheel and it's all going to be taken care of. Um, another philosophy was is attributed to the 17th century man, Oliver Cromwell, who was Lord Protector over England, and he said, trust God and keep your powder dry. And meaning, we're going to trust God, but we're always going to be ready to act. 
to and let God work through those particular actions. And as we come to this text, what we see is um, the writer gives us two different vantage points of dealing with God's providence. On the one hand, we have the the mother-in-law, Naomi, who sees an opportunity and decides to concoct a plan in order to bring about the purposes that she wants. She sees the Lord moving and projects on there what she wants and tries to make it happen. And on, on the other hand, we have the man Boaz, who equally has something that he wants, but he is willing to trust in God and his, his sovereign providence to bring it about, even as he walks in faithfulness. And this particular chapter is full of suspense and intrigue in a way that I think that without some background, I think we miss being 21st century Americans. So let's, let's, let's think through that, that background just a bit. Um, we've said before that Ruth was, or was a Moabitess, so from the nation of Moab. And we mentioned that Moab was outside of the, the nation of Israel, obviously, but it was, and it was one of Israel's enemies, but there was a stigma associated with the nation of Moab. And that was one of uh, permissiveness to sexual immorality. Uh, at the end of the book of Numbers, this is the time when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. The end of the book of Numbers, Moabite women led, they engaged in sexual immorality with Israelite men and led them astray. And that was part of their stigma. But also, the, the nation of Moab itself uh, was founded in Genesis chapter 19 when the man Lot, his, wife, or his daughters, uh, got him drunk and had incestuous relationships with him. So even from the very foundation, there is this sexual immorality that is instigating this, this, this nation of Moab. And... and um, so in chapter 1, when Naomi comes back from the nation of Moab, and she's got this young Moabite woman, you have to expect that the Israelite people of Bethlehem there are looking sideways. Like, you're bringing a Moabite into, into town? And when we get to chapter 2, it's remarkable that, Moab, or that Ruth, this Moabite, is, is demonstrating loyal love, this covenantal love, this kindness, this godliness that marks that should have marked God's people, even in the, the, the time of the judges, this time where the nation of Israel was not acting in a way that was pleasing to the Lord. But then we come to chapter 3, and you wonder, okay, so Ruth was a Moabitess her entire life. Is this thinking still part of her way of life? And Naomi, she lived in Moab for over 10 years. Did she adopt some of that mindset of, of the nation of Moab? Or is there something, it's, it's hard to just completely divorce yourself from the context that you live for a long time. So when we come to chapter 3, Naomi has, begins to hatch this plan. And at the end of chapter 2, they have full bellies and yet their home is empty of a man. They, they don't have a husband for Ruth. And Naomi starts off and she says, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? And 
If you remember back to chapter 1, she had said a similar thing when she was trying to discourage her daughters-in-law from coming back. She said, um, go back because I, you, know, you need to seek rest. And that was, that was code for you need to find a man, uh, a, a husband who will provide for you, who will care for you. There will be security and blessing. But now Naomi, having Ruth in her uh, possession, uh, says now she takes on that responsibility for herself. Should I not seek rest for you that it may go well with you? She's taking responsibility. And she says, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? She sees an opportunity. She looks at what God has done over the past chapter, how God had just so happened to lead Ruth into Boaz's field. There, Ruth just so happened to be protected. Boaz just so happened to be kind to her. He lavished his kindness on her. And Boaz just so happens to be wealthy and a worthy man. And he just so happens to be a relative, it says. Is not Boaz our relative um, with whom the young women you were. Now, when she says, is he not a relative? For us, that would probably mean stay away from Boaz because he's a relative. He's, he's not touchable. But it was just the opposite for them. Um, as Elder Bell just read from Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, God had instituted this law of the kinsman redeemer or the leveret marriage law. And the intent was that God had given land and property and a lineage to each of the clans of Israel. And in order to perpetuate that property within the clan, in order to perpetuate the name of the living, he said that if a man died without having any children and he had a brother, that the brother was supposed to marry his widow. And if that brother had a child with the widow, uh, the first man's wife, then that son was to be uh, considered uh, the lineage of the first, the first brother. And this whole notion of this kinsman redeemer, redeeming the line, is something that is all throughout the book of Ruth. It's, it's something that's been in Naomi's mindset from the very beginning. Uh, if, if you remember from chapter 1 when um, the, the girls are trying to come back with Naomi, she's like, well, I don't have, I don't have any more sons in my belly. I, and even if I were to have, a, I don't even have a husband. And if I got a husband today and I got pregnant today, like you, you're not going to wait, are you? Um, she, she realizes that she doesn't have anything to give. And then in chapter 2, then she's, there's this hint of that, that Boaz is, is one of our redeemers, she says near the end. And here in chapter 3, she brings it up again. And in chapter 4, we'll see the fulfillment of it. So it's this, this, this relative aspect is this kinsman-redeemer law. And if you remember what we said last week when we were talking about the Ruth gleaning and the, the benefit of God's law as a means of provision, uh, we see that yet again. When uh, Ruth had gone into the fields to glean, to gather food, to gather grain, and it was because God had afforded that in his law and was providing for her through the law. And yet again... This kinsman-redeemer law, the leveret marriage law, seems to be a means where God is going to provide that, that husband that she needs, that protection. And so Naomi is seeing that as an opportunity, and she's telling her to pursue Boaz. So she hatches this plan, and 
there is this this plan is rife with innuendo that is a bit elusive for us. She begins by saying, see, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. And it just seems like an offhanded fact, but um, let's talk about that for just a second. So winnowing barley, after they had gathered the, the barley, they needed to prepare it, they needed to separate. The winnowing was uh, a process where they would take the grain and they would put it on some kind of hard surface and they would use some kind of tool or you know, have an animal use this tool to separate the, 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 the grain from the stalk and it would loosen it up and then once they had it all separated, then they would use a tool to, to uh, lift it up in the air and the grain would fall down, the heavier grain, and then the other part, which was the chaff, would be blown away by the wind. And this win- and then they would gather the grain into piles, and, and then they used the grain. Um, they would do this at the threshing floor, is what it said. And the threshing floor was, was usually just some area where there was a hard surface where they could use these winnowing tools. Um, and it was often away from the city, uh, and maybe a rock outcrop in the ground, and they had to find a place where it was going to be just the right amount of wind. Because if there was too much wind, then the grain would get blown away, and if it was too little wind, then the chaff wouldn't be blown away. And so often they would do this winnowing at nighttime. Maybe you've gone out during the day, especially around here, it's really windy during the day, but at nighttime you have a more gentle breeze. And the same thing there, they would often do this at nighttime. So if you think about this, you have men going away from the city to some remote place at nighttime by themselves. And the temptations for men then are the same as temptations for us today. And the threshing floor became known as a place where prostitution was prevalent and ripe. And so when Naomi says he's at the winnowing floor or he's at the threshing floor, immediately you're thinking, Moabite woman going to the threshing floor, what is she thinking? And she, she puts together this plan, which even adds to the intrigue. She says, wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Washing and anointing probably some kind of scented olive oil, some kind of perfume. She's preparing herself. This would be a prelude to a, some kind of physical intimacy. She says, go down to the threshing floor and don't make yourself known. If there's a, a hint of secrecy, that's often a sign of something insidious. The deeds of darkness happen in the dark. Things that are good are often in the light, but she says, go in the nighttime and be secretive about it. And then she says this, um, don't make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Wait until his heart is merry. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. Again, the, the, the original hearers would have heard all sorts of innuendo there. It says when he goes to lie down, 
um, observe the place where he lies, uncover his feet. The, the word used for un- uncovering gets used elsewhere throughout Scripture for uncovering one's nakedness. The term for feet is often an, a euphemism for reproductive organs for a, a male or a female. And then this whole verb of lie down, um, again, another uh, suggestive term. And then she concludes it with, and he, once you do this, he will tell you what to do. He will tell you what to do. Put yourself at his mercy. Dress yourself up. Go in the night. Lay down. Find him. Make sure that it's, it's there. It's entirely suggestive. And there are echoes of this story uh, throughout uh, what's come in, in the biblical narrative um, from the book of Genesis. Um, in Genesis 38, there's a story of Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. His daughter-in-law, Tamar, her husband dies. She doesn't have a son. She asks for another son to come and give her uh, a, a child. And essentially, it doesn't happen. And Judah dresses herself up like a prostitute and finds herself at the, at the city gate. And Judah, her father-in-law, hires her as a prostitute. And he is the one that fathers the child. Um, also, we see echoes of the, the story of J- Jacob with Rachel and Leah, where Jacob is, um, he's, he's working for Rachel, and he's ready to, he's, he's earned Rachel as his wife. And then in, in, in the middle of the night, in the darkness of the night, uh, his father-in-law Laban switches out the, the girls. And so Jacob wakes up in the morning, and there's Leah, the other sister. And, and so you, you is, uh, is Naomi saying, you know, observe the place where he lies because there could be other men that are there. Make sure that it doesn't end up like, like Rachel and Leah. Find, find the right man, and that's, that's where you need to be. And then, of course, um, in Genesis 19 with, the, with Lot and his daughters, the daughters get their father drunk and sleep with him so that they can have a child. And she is told, wait until he finishes eating and drinking and he's in good spirits so that um, this could be the case. So Naomi hatches this plan, and it's entirely suggestive. And Ruth says, all that you say, I will do. And we're, we're sitting in the original hears, and we ought to be saying, well, wait, is she the noble woman of Ruth chapter 2, or is she the, a Moabite? Is she, is she going to is she gonna go and act like a prostitute? In the midst of this, is she going to is she going to be like a Numbers twenty five Moabite woman seducing this worthy man? So we get to verse six. So she went down to the threshing floor, and did just as her mother in law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, although there's no indication that he was drunk, drunk he was his heart was merry. It says he went down to lie at the end of the heap of grain. So the threshing floor was a common area that would be used by multiple farmers. There was probably the middle area which was used for the threshing. When they were done, they would take the grain and put it, the, the, the winnowed grain, and put it into a pile. So when, when he says, um, at the end of the heap of grain, they're probably talking about a specific, the main heap of grain, which would have been off to the side. And says that Boaz went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. So that would have been, you know, the corner of this floor outside of sight. You know, a good place for 
for a woman to sneak up and says, he lay down, lay down at the end of the heap of grain and then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And then at midnight, it says that he was startled and turned over. A better term is probably he, he shivered because all she had done, it, it, was, it was innocent. She simply uncovered his feet, feet. And it was the cold of the night woke him up and he turned over and he, in the darkness of night, sees a woman. And he says, who are you? And his immediate thought could have been, is this a prostitute who has come? And she says, I am Ruth, your servant. I am Ruth, your servant. And if you remember um, what Naomi said, what her instructions were, at this point in, the, in her instructions, she said, then he will tell you what to do. But she doesn't stop to let him tell her what to do. She continues, she says, I am Ruth, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And beloved, what we have to see is that uh, she had come to offer herself, but not for a one-night stand. She was offering herself in marriage. This, this language of spread your wings over your servant was a marriage proposal. Uh, if you look in your bulletins, the, the um, scripture for me- prayer and medica- meditation from Ezekiel 16 gives that same thing where the Lord God said that he spread his gar- the corner of his garment over his people and covered them as a betrothal. Ruth is asking Boaz, marry me because you are a redeemer. And we can't, uh, we can't underestimate how risky of a proposition this is, how remarkable this is. This is a servant or a worker proposing her employer. This is a foreigner proposing to an Israelite. This is a poor woman proposing to a wealthy man. This is a young woman proposing to a much older man. There is great risk in what she is doing. But Boaz, as has been his custom, continues to show his kindness and his compassion and his love and his godliness, and he responds accordingly. He says, and says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. He sees her act of approaching him as a kindness to him, that covenantal love. Um, and, and the language that she uses of, you know, spread your wing over your servant. We have to see that in chapter 2, Boaz had blessed Ruth and said, you know, blessed be you, Ruth, because you have come under the wings of the Almighty. And now she's saying, you be, you be the one to provide you be the, the means of protection and the means of blessing. You spread your wing. Let the Lord spread his wings by you spreading your wings on me. And he says, that's a kindness to me that you have not gone after young or, um, young or old. And he agrees to do it. He says, and now, my daughter, do not fear. 
I will do all that you ask. And he says this, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. He doesn't say, I'll do it despite the fact that you're a Moabite. He says, all the townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And what was Boaz called in chapter 2? There was a worthy man of Bethlehem whose name was Boaz. Now he's saying, all the um, townspeople know that you're a worthy woman. You, you may know this in the, in the Hebrew Bible. The order of the Old Testament books is different from ours. And the book that immediately precedes the book of Ruth is the book of Proverbs. And at the end of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 10 through the end, is what we call the Proverbs 31 woman description, the wife of noble character, the worthy woman. And this woman is described in the book of Proverbs as one whose arms are clad with strength, whose kindness is on her tongue. And that's Ruth. That we're, the, the, the pattern is... The connection is unmistakable. And specifically with this, he says, um, all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And in the very last statement about the Proverbs 31 woman is, let her works praise her at the gates. And literally what Boaz says here is, he says, all the gate knows that you are a worthy woman. It is uh, Ruth's kindness, her chesed, her covenantal love as she has lived in, in among the, the, Bethlehem, the people of Bethlehem. They, they know her of her righteous work and her works have praised her at the gate. She is that Proverbs 31. And Boaz says, I have found the helper that is fit for me. She will do me good and not harm all the days of my life. This is the one. I will do this. I will do all that you ask. And yet there's a catch. There's a catch. He says, and now, verse 12, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer that is nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Uh, we don't know the ordering of who would be able to redeem him first, but Boaz, as a worthy man, understands this ordering. And even though he has this woman who is proposing to him, who is offering herself to him, he's not taking advantage of that for his own purposes. He's willing to submit himself to this custom, and he's willing to trust God's law, God's pattern, God's providence to bring about the right end. He, he's not, he's not going to force the issue. But he says, you're going to have a husband. And if not this guy who has the first right of refusal, then I will do it. So as the morning comes says that she laid into his feet until morning, but she arose before anybody could recognize. And even then, you see this hint that Boaz recognizes that much could be misunderstood about her, her visit at the threshing floor. And he is, even then, zealous to protect her 
reputation. He says, um, let not it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And then he gives her this grain. And perhaps the, grain, the reason he gives her the grain, uh, one of the reasons is to make it seem as though like that was why she was at the threshing floor, was to gather this grain. But he says, bring the garment you're, you're wearing and hold it out. And she holds it out. And it says, he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And we don't know what measure. It doesn't say what measure, but it couldn't have been the ephah that we saw that she gathered in chapter 2 because that would have been probably over 200 pounds of grain. That's just not feasible for anybody, uh, most people. Um, but it could have been uh, a sea of flour, which is probably more likely. But even then, we're talking somewhere on the order of 60 to 90 pounds worth of grain. And he measures this out. And he puts it in her garment. And it says that, and he put it on her. He had to help her carry it. And they both go into the city. And as she comes to her mother-in-law, you can expect her mother-in-law, who's been a nervous wreck all night, you know, wanting to find out what in the world happened. And she sees Ruth come and she, how, did, how did it happen? You know, what happened? You know, did, did everything work out? You know, what, what, did, what, what happened? And, and Ruth tells her the whole story. And she told her everything. And then she said, see these six measures of barley. And it says, because you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Indeed, she hasn't gone back empty-handed. Not only has she gone back with this grain, she's gone back with a promise. She's gone back with the promise that she will have a husband. She will have a redeemer. Um, it's, a, it's, it's as if Boaz gave her the grain as a sign to say, as surely as you have this seed now, you will have a seed in your womb. If not Boaz, then from this other redeemer. And perhaps we're supposed to see something in the six. You know, the author gives us the fact that it was six measures multiple times. And numbers are important in Scripture. Seven is the number of completion and perfection and uh, totality. So the fact that it's six, maybe we're supposed to hint, there's supposed to be a hint that there is an unfinished nature to this promise. There's something that is incomplete in this result. Um, so as we think about this passage, there's really just two points of application that I want to draw that we haven't already talked about. And the first is, um, as we look at the young woman, Ruth, um, I think one thing that we struggle with a lot is feeling imprisoned or as victims to our past or our upbringing. And um, what we have to see is that we are not victims to our past. The, the impact of our upbringing is strong, and that's a biblical reality. Proverbs says, train up a child in the way that uh, he should go, and when he is old, he shall not depart from it. There is a reality that we need to be diligent in how we raise our children because of the impact that we make on them. And those of us who have had either rough childhoods or um, God-glorifying childhoods, uh, that impacts us significantly. But we're not imprisoned to it. God's grace is greater than even our upbringing. Um, Ruth was raised in the ways and the religion and the lifestyle of Moab. And 
Um, and yet the Lord broke through with his grace. And we don't know how she came to grasp this covenantal love, this grasping of the Almighty God. Um, and yet God's Spirit worked in her. And it was evident. Um, it was evident in her life. And even the Lord Jesus Christ, I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ was born into a life of sin and misery, but he wasn't beholden to it, and he wasn't dragged down in it. He was born into it so that he could be preserved in it, and he could remain sinless in it so that he could redeem us from our past, so that we could have hope in the midst of our past. But the other side of that is that... um, our God can work through the stereotypes. He can break through the stereotypes. It's easy for us on the other side to, to fail to believe that God can actually bring change. Uh, it's easy for us to stereotype because sometimes stereotypes, stereotypes are there for a, a reason. Um, and no doubt the people of Bethlehem looked sideways at Ruth when she came into town. And the hearers of the, sto- of the story who understood Moab and all the language would have felt that tension of Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth the Moabitess. And yet the Lord rescued her from that life. He gave her the light of faith and he made her into that worthy woman. First Corinthians 13 says that love always trusts and love always hopes. We have to believe. We, our, our faith clings to the fact that God's grace is powerful, that his spirit changes lives, that we are delivered from a, a life of darkness and sin and brought into a life of freedom and redemption. And it, we, we have to believe that that's true for other people, if it's true for us. And if that's the case, we can't be cynical. The Lord Jesus Christ was born into a place where uh, he was scorned because he was from Nazareth. Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And we can't have, like, we, we can't have this uh, mindset where we uh, are, are cynical because of anybody that is from any background, whether ethnic or socioeconomic or you know, male or female, rich or poor, young or older, anything. Those, the Lord has a multiform body of Christ, multiform family, and a beautiful, uh, rich nation that he is building. And our, our God is, is never focused on where we were, but he's always focused on where we are in Christ Jesus and where he is taking us, that he is renewing us into the image of his Savior. He is making us into his beloved Son, helping us to grow in the grace and the knowledge and the, the conformity with his son. And, and so if, um, if you have a, a, a background or a past that you are ashamed of, you ought to know that Jesus Christ rescues from those backgrounds. Jesus Christ is not focused on that. He is focused on extending to you his grace and setting you free from that grace so that you can walk in the beauty of his life and the beauty of his love and be renewed into his image. And then the last thing, um, second thing I want to point out is just the response to God's providence. We have these two 
different views. We have Naomi and we have Boaz. Naomi, who seems to be opportunistic, trying to help the situation by sending um, Ruth into this, uh, this situation. And then Boaz, seeing the situation that's presented to him, but then you know, tapping the brakes just a bit to wait for God to work out his providence. And we ought to ask, well, which is the right approach? Should we should we jump on opportunities that the Lord gives us, or uh, should we just completely wait and trust? And I think the answer is not an either-or. Is that me? <laughs> not an either-or, but a both-and. I mean, God worked through Naomi's meddling mother-in-law activity. She, The Lord brought that, that situation to bear, and yet Boaz was right to trust in God's providence. And as we'll see, you know, the Lord brings about his glorious purposes in chapter 4, but not, uh, not as a, a means of manipulation. And notice that Naomi couldn't bring about what she wanted as much as she tried. God had put it into Boaz's heart to be a worthy man and to respect God's, God's ways. Um, Boaz entrusted himself because he knew God's way was perfect and beloved, that's what our Savior Jesus Christ did. Our Savior Jesus Christ, um, God worked through him to bring about his purposes, while at the same time he submitted himself to his Father's ways. He taught, he lived, he healed, he did all the things he did, but submitting to God's ways. He, when, you can see that when he taught, um, there were times when people fell away, walked away. He didn't chase after them. He trusted that God's will would be done, in the midst of his teaching, he he asked the father, Father, if there's any other way than letting than making me go to the cross, make it so, but not my will, but your will. He pursued God's providence, and, and even while he trusted himself to us, to it, and in so doing, he secured eternal life for us. So, as we come to the, the conclusion of this chapter. I think with the, the original hearers, we can breathe this sigh of relief that Ruth proved herself to be a worthy woman. She maintained her integrity even in the midst of this perilous plan. We can breathe the sigh of relief that she will have a husband to care for her and to provide for her, and yet there's unresolved tension. Who's going to be the man? Is it going to be Boaz, or is it going to be this other a redeemer. Naomi and Ruth certainly hope that it's Boaz, and it seems that Boaz hopes that as well. But the one thing we know is that this will be resolved soonly. Naomi says, wait, my daughter, until you learn how this matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. The hope of redemption is secured, but it's not yet complete. And for that, we still wait. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you do sovereignly protect us and watch over us. We do pray that you would help us to walk by faith and not by sight. We pray that we would be faithful to, um, to trust you in, in, in all things. Thank you that you love us and you do care for us and that you do redeem us out of our past lives in order to walk in the fullness of your joy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.